This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by Mind's Eye. Hello, everybody. And I'm recording this the day after Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. And when you hear this, hope you had a good one. I'm going to start. Uh, I think the theme for this recording is just going to be, what are people doing? And we're going to start with... Uh, yeah, we've just had the, the Chinese New Year. We've just had Valentine's Day. Um, and so we're choosing an artist who is of um, Asian descent. And we're starting with flowers. So it's titled, Fantastical Art Joins Hundreds of Blooming Orchids to Shed Light on Conservation Efforts. Smithsonian Gardens' 28th Annual Orchid Exhibition is underway at the Kogod K-O-G-O-D, I hope I said it correctly, Courtyard, by Alicia Alt. A room full of hundreds of blooming orchids is always a spectacular sight. But Smithsonian Gardens has gone even further with its 28th annual orchid exhibition. Held in the Kogod Courtyard between the National Portrait Gallery and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. For the first time, the Smithsonian commissioned art to complement the showy natural display. Selecting the work of 41-year-old Baltimore-based artist Fan Huang, spelled capital P-H-A-A-N, I'm going to pronounce it Fan, Fan, and H-O-W-N-G. I apologize for the mispronunciations. Huang Huang hopes her art helps orchids become the gateway drug for conservation, as she put it. The Smithsonian's annual orchid show is conducted in collaboration with the U.S. Botanic Garden. It will be on display only through April 28th. The plants can spend only a short time outside of their ideal growing conditions, 60 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, with 65 to 80 percent humidity. Those conditions are maintained year-round at the Smithsonian's 16,000-square-foot greenhouse in Suitland, Maryland, where the institution currently has about 5,000 orchid plants. Gosh, they're pretty. Justin Condrat, lead horticulturist for the Smithsonian Gardens Orchid Collection, says the 28,000-square-foot cottard cogod courtyard, which has a frosted glass canopy ceiling, is an acceptable environment for the short term. Smithsonian Gardens employees will regularly maintain humidity and nutrients during the exhibition. The annual show educates visitors about orchids' precarious situation in some areas of the world. Orchids have been depleted by poaching in some regions, and changes in climate and habitat threaten many species. Without orchids and their complex relationships with fungi and pollinators, entire ecosystems could collapse. Huang's artwork pays homage to the magic of the flowers with fantastical neon-colored cash pots, silk fabric tree wraps, and eight three-dimensional sculptures of a select group of orchids, like the flowers themselves, whose spots or pouch-like lips lure in pollinators. Huang's bright works are attractants. 
To construct the sculptures, she used 3D prints of plants in the Smithsonian Gardens collection, then mounted them onto a steel armature and base. They were then modified and finished with resin, resin foam, foam air-dry clay, EVA foam, and acrylic paint. Some visitors will come for the art, says Kondrat, and also end up dazzled by the incredible diversity of the flowers. The orchid family, the Orchidaceae, has at least 29,000 known species, with more constantly being discovered. The flowers are found around the globe, everywhere except in Antarctica. The largest diversity is in the tropics, though they are under the most threat there due to disappearing habitat. Among the 1,000 plants that will eventually be part of the show, as new ones are brought in to replace those with faded blooms, will be the national flower of Guatemala, the Lycasti virginalis f. alba, also known as the Monja Blanca, or the white nun. That is an orchid that is considered pretty rare in the trade, and also in the wild. The Monja Blanca is white, but Huang started with a 3D scan of the flower and then created her own imaginary species, a vivid pink, periwinkle, and orange version, which she named Lycast Fanalis after herself. The exhibition will also include Smithsonian Gardens' gargantuan orchid, orchid Bucky. I'm not pronouncing that name. <laughs> a hundred-pound plant with four-foot-long leaves. Bucky has not been out of the greenhouse since it was donated in 2016. A grant made it possible for Smithsonian Gardens to build a special stand so Bucky could be safely transported and put on display without endangering the plant. Visitors may have to shield themselves if Bucky blooms, however. Oh, the smell is akin to, quote, Hot garbage in July, says Kondrat, <laughs> gives a Bucky a 25% chance of blooming during the exhibition. Another unique plant that will be on display is huh, Epicatalea vecchi orchid that turns 134 years old this year. It was registered by England's Royal Horticultural Society in 1890. Some of the orchids will be displayed in cash pots that Huang created. The colorfully patterned vessels represent the various growing mediums for orchids, some of which she was surprised to learn about. I had no idea that they grow in rocks, and I feel like that's something that people should know. Orchids' complex roles in the ecosystem are highlighted in several different flower beds. The fungi in their roots, known as mycorrhizae, provide nutrition to the orchids and, in turn, the orchids provide the fungi with carbohydrates formed through photosynthesis. Scientists are studying those fungi to help determine which can best sustain various orchids. 
that research will make it easier to reintroduce threatened plants into the wild. Orchids also have an important relationship with bees, flies, mosquitoes, and other insects that transport pollen from one plant to another. Conrad hopes visitors come away with the understanding that orchids are considered important enough to be part of the Smithsonian's vast collection. The collection's mission includes conservation, cultivating and curating the orchids, while acquiring plants of merit and diversity. The Smithsonian is also committed to managing risks of virus and other threats, and educating the public through virtual and in-person displays and workshops, social media, and internships, often in collaboration with other institutions. A small percentage of the collection includes plants that have been designated vulnerable and endangered by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Horticulturists periodically refine the collection. Every single collection item has to have a value, says Kondrat. It can't just be taking up space. Smithsonian Gardens aim to use appropriate and ethical collection techniques and safeguard the orchids for future generations and for scientific research and use. Every orchid at the Suitland Greenhouse is a living collection item, adding that it is given the same level of care and the same attention to detail as any of the portraits hanging in the National Portrait Gallery. All right, let's go from flowers to jewelry, or so it seems. To make Tiffany and Company and household name, the luxury brand's founder cashed in on the transatlantic telegraph craze. Charles Lewis Tiffany purchased the surplus cable from the 1858 venture, turning it into souvenirs that forever linked his name to the short-lived telecommunications milestone by Robert Clara. On Tuesday, August 24, 1858, readers of the New York Times chanced on an unusual classified ad. The 31-line notice had been taken out by Charles Lewis Tiffany, proprietor of the opulent emporium called Tiffany & Company, founded in 1837. The company tempted affluent New Yorkers with imported fineries like porcelain, Japanese paper mache, walking sticks, and crystal glassware. In the parlance of the time, Tiffany's was a fancy goods store. The goods advertised in this specific ad were anything but fancy. Still, they were certainly unique. Earlier that month, the steam frigate, the USS Niagara, had finished laying down the world's first transatlantic telegraph cable, a 2,200-mile strand of iron and copper that promised to cut communication times between North America and Europe from weeks to seconds. In the deft bit of maneuvering, Tiffany had gotten his hands on the 20 miles of surplus cable left coiled in the Niagara's holds. 
He had one purpose in mind for his acquisition, making souvenirs. In order to place the cable within the reach of all classes, and that every family in the United States may possess a specimen of this wonderful mechanical curiosity, announced the ad, Tiffany and Company will cut it into pieces of four inches in length and mount them neatly with brass ferules. Oh, ferules? Oh, I got a new word to look up. Okay. Oh, yep. Mm hmm. So it, the picture shows exactly what it looks like piece of cable uh, with a band on each end and then a Tiffany stamped band in the middle. Well, most of the fripperies <laughs> at Tiffany and Company were out of reach for the average New Yorkers. Tiffany priced his cable souvenirs at just 50 cents each, about $19 today. His read of the market proved prescient. As Joseph Pertell recounted in his 1971 book, The Tiffany Touch, the crowds were so great when the souvenirs were put on sale that the constabulary had to be called. Today, Tiffany's canny promotion of the summer of 1858 is long forgotten. Telegraphic communication is obsolete, and Tiffany and Company, a multi-billion dollar luxury goods colossus, no longer needs to sell souvenirs. Even so, on the occasion of Charles Lewis Tiffany's 212th birthday, his cable souvenir enterprise merits a closer look. The finger-length mementos were more than, a, more than a testament to one man's marketing wisdom. They allowed thousands to own a literal slice of technological history, helping to make Tiffany & Company a household name in the process. The souvenirs continue to occupy pride of place in collections both private and public, including the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, which houses a box of them. It's worth remembering that at that moment in time, the transatlantic cable was like the moon landing in 1969, something that captivated people on both sides of the Atlantic, says Harold Wallace, curator of electricity collections at the museum. For Tiffany to get a piece of this, he's showing not just entrepreneurial chops, but also tagging on to this international event. The transatlantic cable was the brainchild of entrepreneur Cyrus W. Field, who made his fortune in the wholesale paper business. Field became interested in telegraphy after meeting electrical engineer Frederick Newton Gisborne in 1854. Gisborne needed finan financing for a project that would extend North America's existing telegraph system from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland. If a cable could be strung across the Cabot Strait, Field reasoned, couldn't a longer one be laid across the entire North Atlantic? Theor theoretically, yes, but the obstacles would be enormous. The mountainous seafloor was two miles deep in places. Since no single ship was large enough to pay out, pull, and unwind, 
the cable's full length, two vessels. The British battleship, the HMS Agamemnon, wow, Agamemnon, spelled A-G-A-M-E-M-N-O-N, Agamemnon, wow, and the U.S. Navy's Niagara, easier to pronounce, each shouldered half of the task. Equipment failure, heavy seas, and snapped cables doomed the first several attempts. But the venture finally succeeded on August 5, 1858, when men of the newly incorporated Atlantic Telegraph Company pulled the ends of the cable ashore in Trinity Bay, Newfoundland, and Valentia Island in Ireland. Cities up and down America's eastern seaboard exulted over the news. In Boston, poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow called the enterprise the great news of the hour, the year, the century. Field stayed in Newfoundland for several days, then set sail for New York, where locals kicked off their celebrations, parades, brass bands, bonfires, before he even arrived. A composer wrote a ditty called The Atlantic Telegraph Polka. Said the Times on August 18th, New York yesterday went cable mad. Amid the bacchanalia, Tiffany was preparing his master stroke. Born into a Connecticut cotton mill family on February 15, 1812, Tiffany possessed no formal education in business. But as an 1893 history of Tiffany and Company observed, one of Mr. Tiffany's most noted traits, and one that has distinguished the house in its entire career, is an instinctive avoidance of beaten paths. <laughs> After a revolution in France forced Louis Philip I to abdicate the throne in 1848, Tiffany swooped in and bought diamonds from fleeing French aristocrats on the cheap, creating a sensation when he whisked the jewels back to New York. This French insurgency gave Tiffany his first big public relations coup. The transatlantic cable would be his second. It's unclear how the excess cable wound up in Tiffany's hands, in his store's early days, he'd maneuvered his way around the wharves, befriending ship captains to get first dibs on unique imports in their holds. Tiffany also counted among his friends the impresario P.T. Barnum, whose knack for creating sensation had rubbed off on him. The transaction likely took place shortly after the Niagara docked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard on August 18th. Left aboard the ship were the massive wheels over which the cable was reeled out, the Times reported the following morning. And two of the circles are coiled the surplus cable in its original flakes. There are reports current that this surplus has already sold for $360 a mile. Since there was little of that distinguished the cable on sight alone, 18 Seven-strand iron wires enclosed a copper core insulated with a latex called gutta percha. Tiffany secured a letter from Field attesting to the authenticity of the cable he was using, promising each purchaser 
a copyrighted facsimile of that certificate. He also girdled each souvenir with a brass collar whose stamped lettering read Atlantic Telegraph Cable, guaranteed by Tiffany and Company, Broadway, New York, 1858. Tiffany's brilliance lay in that brass collar. Its purpose wasn't simply authentication. It physically fused an important artifact with the name of his store. It certainly had an advertising aspect to it, says historian John Steele Gordon, author of A Thread Across the Ocean, the heroic, sto- heroic, heroic story of the transatlantic cable. Tiffany was always interested in getting his name out there. He had a genius for marketing. Rachel Taylor, author of Tiffany and Company, The Story Behind the Style, adds, He had an acute sense of the story and was keen to put Tiffany next to it. He wasn't a jeweler. He was a showman and a salesman first. Tiffany and Company did not respond to a request for comment on this story, but its 1893 corporate history acknowledges the same point referring to the surplus cable purchase as a clever stroke by its founder. Nobody knows exactly how many telegraph cable souvenirs Tiffany created. In theory, 20 miles of wire were enough for 316,800 4-inch souvenirs, but the entrepreneur clearly didn't make that many. The store also advertised cable by the foot, and a range of commemorative items, from canes to whip handles to coils for the ornamenting parlors and offices, per the 1893 history. In any case, two facts are clear. The souvenirs were very popular when they first went on sale, and soon afterward, demand for them all but evaporated. Technical revolution though it was. The Atlantic Cable never worked very well. On August 16, 1858, the 99 words of the Cable's first public message, Greetings from Queen Victoria to President James Buchanan, took, huh, 16 hours and 30 minutes to transmit. With each passing day, the signal grew weaker and the sentences more garbled. The last decipherable message passed beneath the ocean on September 1, 1858. The cable's useful life had lasted roughly, oh, three weeks. Later, reports would reveal not only that Chief Electrician Edward Whitehouse had designed a too-thin copper core, but also that the 2,000 volts his induction coils shot through the cable had fried it. Field stalled for time, but eventually dropped a note to the Associated Press on September 24th, cable not in working order. An adoring public that had hailed the man as a national hero now turned on him just as quickly. Alas for all human glory, its paths lead but to the grave, lamented Field's younger brother, Henry Martin Field who watched as his sibling was accused of perpetrating a stock scheme. 
Some even claimed that the transatlantic cable had never existed in the first place. It had all been a hoax. Citizens exasperated by the cable's failure were, of course, unlikely to want souvenirs made from it. On October 5th, Tiffany placed another ad in the Times, this one announcing that his company would dispose of the remainder of the telegraph cable now on hand by the mile at a very low price. The story of Tiffany and Company's cable souvenirs does not end here, though it grows as murky as the ocean's depths. However, many souvenirs Tiffany managed to sell. It's evident he had plenty left over, because whole batches of them have turned up far and wide. The New York Historical Society, for instance, has a box of 930 Tiffany souvenirs, apparently donated by Field. In 1974, George McGowan, a resident of Lake George, New York, discovered 40 crates of souvenirs, each containing 100 pieces. Later that year, coincidentally or not, a California gold and silver broker called Lanello Reserves began selling a correspondingly large quantity of the cable sections for $100 apiece. I have no idea how Lanello came across the lot. It had no expertise in that area, says Bill Burns, keeper of the website AtlanticCable.com. That appears to have been a way to raise money. Lanello was a fundraising division of the Church Universal and Triumphant, a survivalist cult church. With a steep asking price for its cable segments, $100 in 1974 is about $620 in today's money, Lanello apparently had enough unsold stock to donate a box of 100 to the American History Museum. According to Curator Wallace, 99 remain in the museum's collection. The last of the 100 was later gifted to the Houston Museum of Natural Science. In recent decades, an assortment of Tiffany Cable souvenirs have surfaced at real estate sales, at estate sales and auctions, where they fetch prices in the hundreds, high hundreds of dollars and up. Whether Tiffany and Company band is still attached makes a big difference in the object's saleability, says Manhattan antiques dealer George Glazer. There are some cable segments that float around that don't have the label in the middle, but people don't want them as much, says Glazer, who estimates he sold around 50 Tiffany's cable souvenirs out of his eponymous gallery on New York's Upper East Side. They have a lower value, even though they're unquestionably identical and unquestionably authentic. People want the Tiffany name. This demand is probably more a testament to the irrepressible appeal of the luxury brand than it is to the appreciation of tele tele telegraphy. Huh, in 1858. Tiffany lived to age 90, dying in 1902. Were he still around, he'd no doubt be pleased that his souvenir idea worked out pretty well after all. All right, flowers, pretties, now art. Ken Burns turns his lens to Leonardo da Vinci. 
An upcoming two-part documentary will be the filmmaker's first foray into a non-American subject matter. By Julia Binswanger. Ken Burns, the award-winning documentary filmmaker known for the Vietnam War, the Civil War, the Dust Bowl, and more, is turning his attention away from American subject materials for the first time. His new two-part series, which will air on the PBS in November, is all about Leonardo da Vinci. While Leonardo's paintings and drawings rank among the world's most celebrated, the Renaissance artist was also an inventor, scientist, and engineer. The new film, which Burns co-directed with daughter Sarah Burns and son-in-law Michael McMahon, or, sorry, David, sorry, David McMahon, examines the Italian polymath's unrelenting drive to understand the world and its enduring influence of his legacy. As we set out to explore Leonardo's life, we realized that while he was very much a man of his time, he was also interested in something more universal, Cicera Burns. Leonardo was uniquely focused on finding connections throughout nature, something that strikes us as very modern today, but which, of course, has a long history. The film will mark a departure from Ken Burns' previous work in several ways. In addition to covering a non-American subject, it will also stray from the documentary style that made him famous, featuring split screens with images, video, and sound from different periods to further contextualize Leonardo's art and scientific explorations. To this end, the documentary follows a non-linear timeline, drawing on Leonardo's notebooks alongside archival film, photos, and audio from different time periods. The filmmakers hope this approach will help immerse the audience into Leonardo's world. Though we follow Leonardo's personal journey and explore his artistic and scientific accomplishments, we're also really focused on what went on in his mind and on understanding the depths of his curiosity, says McMahon. Leonardo's thinking was so unique and in many ways timeless that our traditional approach alone would have been insufficient. The production will also show interviews with experts from around the world, as well as other artists and thinkers across multiple fields who were influenced by Leonardo's work. One of those figures is the filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, who says at the beginning of the film, The modernity, modernity of Leonardo is that he understands that knowledge and imagination are intimately related. Part one of the documentary, The Dis Disciple of Experience, airs on November 18th and examines the Renaissance artist's early career. It focuses on the studio he trained in with his teacher, Andrea del Veraccio, and the 18 years he spent under the patronage of Ludovico Sforza, the ruler of the Duchy of Milan. In this period, Leonardo created some of his most renowned works, including The Last Supper. 
Part 2, Painter God, which debuts on November 19th, follows Leonardo's scientific endeavors and travels around Italy. During this time, he began working for military strongman Cesare Borgia, devising new ways to map cities. No single person can speak to our collective effort to understand the world and ourselves, says Burns. But Leonardo has a unique genius for inquiry. Aided by his extraordinary skills as an artist and scientist, that helps us better understand the natural world that we are part of and to appreciate more fully what it means to be alive and human. Well, stick with art. Experts recreate looming 43-foot-tall statue of the Constantine using 3D modeling. Although only fragments of the 1,700-year-old Colossus remain, experts hope to paint a fuller picture for the public with a new installation at Rome's Capitoline Museums by Julia Binswanger. In the 4th century CE, the Roman Emperor Constantine commissioned a nearly 43-foot-tall statue of himself looming over his subjects. Today, the emperor's legacy remains. He played a pivotal role in spreading the Christian faith. But the statue has crumbled. All that survives are ten incomplete marble fragments of his head, hands, and other body parts. While seeing the original statue is impossible, a nonprofit in Madrid called the Factum Foundation hopes to achieve the next best thing. The organization has carefully reconstructed the Colossus. It's through the evidence of those fragments, working rather like forensic scientists, with all the experts from different disciplines, we were able to build back something that is absolutely awe-inspiring, says Adam Lowe, the Factum Foundation's founder. The 4th century fragments were discovered in 1486. Over the course of three days, the Factum Foundation scanned those pieces and used the data to create a 3D model. Relying on historical research and expert opinions to recreate the missing pieces. We're not trying to build a fake object, Lowe adds. We're trying to build something that physically and emotionally engages, and that intellectually stimulates you. The new Colossus, wielding a scepter in one hand and an orb in the other, was recently placed in one of the Capitolini's, Capitoline, maybe, museum's side gardens. It was originally unveiled during the 2022 Recycling Beauty exhibition in Milan. The statue's body is made from a mixture of resin, polyurethane, and marble powder, while the cloth tunic is made from gold leaf and plaster. Although it's impossible to know how closely the replica resembles the original, experts say the new statue captures the Colossus' grandiosity in a way that broken fragments can only suggest. In this statue, there's not just beauty— there's the violence of power, says Salvatore Sedis, an archaeologist 
and one of the curators of the Milan exhibition. According to the Times, recent research indicates that the ancient sculpture was reworked from another large-scale statue, which depicted the god Jupiter. In addition to the new statue, museum goers will be able to see nine of the surviving pieces from the original, which are part of the Capitoline's museum's permanent collection. The new replica. Which is just a starting point for the Factum Foundation. Another version of the sculpture will be installed at near Hadrian's Wall in England. It's somewhere between documenting and recreating, and interpreting, says Lowe. But I really hope that this is the beginning of a revolution about how to share, and how to show. Well, it looks like I'm on a Valentine theme with what people do. How this German chocolate shop created a sweet way for young admirers to pass love notes. For more than 150 years, Heidelberg locals and tourists have enjoyed the Studentenkuss or Student Kiss, a praline nougat on a waffle wafer covered in dark chocolate. I'm in, by Yolanda Evans. <laughs> Located alongside the Nectar River, Heidelberg is home to Germany's oldest university and other impressive sites like the Old Bridge, Heidelberg Castle, and the Student Jail. But it's also a city of romance, thanks to a little cafe on Haspelgasse. Haspelgasse. And a piece of chocolate that has spun a tale of young lovers and intrigue for generations, easily recognized these days by its bright red box adorned with a silhouette of a student in a cap, the student and kiss or student kiss is a praline nougat on a waffle wafer covered in dark chocolate, about the size of a Reese's peanut butter cup. First cafe Knossel, and now today the student and cuss house, just down the street, sell the treats to locals and tourists. The student kiss is a sweet symbol of the city and a charming souvenir, says Stefan Schmidt, project manager of Heidelberg Marketing. In the nineteenth century, gifting the confection was a way to show affection. Oh, a confection affection! <laughs> Heidelberg was a thriving university town, where sons of nobility and rising industrialist class went to further their education. At the same time, young ladies of marriageable age flocked to this city to attend finishing schools, all while being on the lookout for a suitable husband. It was a destination for education, not so much for girls. Says Patricia Kern, a city guide in Heidelberg, if you were a girl in Germany, you were not allowed to study in Heidelberg, not before 1900. The girls were attending finishing school, then finding a husband, then getting married. So when we talk about the love stories happening in cafes, we're talking about very young people. 
etiquette of proper society at the time stipulated that women weren't allowed to mix and mingle without the watchful eye of their chaperones. The one place where both sexes could converge was Café Knossel, the oldest chocolate shop in town. Founded in 1863 by Fridolin Knossel, it soon became a favorite meeting place for Heidelberg society, as everyone appreciated Knossel's exquisite confectionery and his humor. It was also a popular gathering spot for students because of its ties to Vandalia, a German fraternity. Back in the day, parents sent money to different cafes. Innkeepers or restaurants around Heidelberg weekly so that the students wouldn't spend their allowance all at once. Students would frequent the cafe, hoping to catch the eye of a lovely young girl lady. Dating in the 19th century had strict rules and regulations. In the courting process, a young man would order a piece of cake for the young lady he fancied. He would give it to her, or have it given to her governess or private tutor for approval. When he was given permission, the boy could meet with the girl in a separate room in the cafe where they could get to know each other. Once parents got wind of this courting custom, they put a stop to it because of the students' reputation for drinking, and the governesses became much stricter with their wards. This is when the student in Cuss was born. Contrary to popular belief, this chocolate treat was not conceived to be a love token, as it was already a part of the Café Canossel's menu, along with pies and cakes, when he opened the café in 1863. Ever so observant, Canossel did not dismiss the secret longing of young people. Instead, he surprised them one day with a fine chocolate confection, which allowed the boys and girls to message each other discreetly. It was more or less a project between Knossel and his wife, says Eric Stutzenberger, manager of the Heidelberger Studentenkuss. Studentenkuss? The students would write their names, what they were majoring in, and where they came from on a piece of paper, fold it, and put it behind the chocolate, which was then wrapped. When the governess wasn't looking, the students would sneak the chocolate inside the woman's bag or leave it on the table so that the woman would have some eye contact with the guy who gave her the chocolate. Once at home, the girl would find the message. If she fancied the guy, the, girl, the woman might pretend to drop her handkerchief on the street so that he would pick it up, and they could exchange words. She could then talk to him by calling him by his first name, which, of course, a big thing in the day, or ask him about his studies or if he went home. Stutzenberger adds, the governess would think that it was okay because they must be friends. Much has changed since Fridolin Knossel first created the student kiss as young lovers do not need to be hidden these days. But Knossel's descendants still make the sweet treat today. Continuing the family tradition, Knossel's two great-granddaughters, 
Anita and Lizalette Canossal ran the Cafe Canossal until 2005, when the operation became too large for just the two of them. Instead of selling the cafe, they leased it out to Bernd Leonard, who runs the operation today. After some renovation, Leonard opened a hotel above the cafe that consists of six modern rooms and three apartments. Tourists can still stop at Cafe Canossal for a meal like schnitzel or pastries, and of course, the student kiss. The two sisters then opened the Heidelberger Studentenkuss, a small shop devoted entirely to the student kiss, and a space two houses down from the original cafe, filling it with shelves of chocolates and photos of famous customers on the walls. It was becoming more or less a complex situation with the cafe, says student Stutzenberger. So they split it up and said, okay, we're not giving up the cafe, but we have to save the tradition, so to speak. Despite the cafe no longer being run by the Knossel family, it's still an important institution in Heidelberg. It's such a reminder of the history of Heidelberg as a student sit- city, because it was a major meeting point for students who were members of fraternities. This is also why, if you look at the logo of the student kiss, there's this young man wearing this cap, which was a typical cap of a student would wear back when they were a member of the student fraternity. Sadly, with the death of Anita and with Lissolette getting older, Stutzenberger has taken over the responsibility of day-to-day sales. Lissolette, who is 70 years old, still runs the business in the background, though. Even today, they make the student and cuss according to the original recipe from 1863 and by hand, made fresh several times a week. The student kiss is a praline mixture consisting of truffle, nougat, noisette cream on a fine wafer crisp and then covered with dark chocolate. Since it has become such a bigger production, they outsource the making of the main chocolate and all the filling to a little village just outside of Heidelberg. But everything else is done at the shop, and all production of the chocolates is under the watchful eyes of Lisette, Lisette Lizotti, More or less, the chocolate is finished at the shop, says Stutzenberger. The correcting, the tasting, the packing, and all the other stuff is still done in the back of the shop. When you start working here, you still have to go to the village and try everything with the owner. She always has the last word on the filling, and if it needs more nougat or more sugar... Not only does the legacy of the Heidelberg Kiss still resonate with the locals, but it's also a popular shop for tourists and even some well-known personalities. Michelle Obama, Angela Merkel, Prince William and Catherine, Princess of Wales, have all visited the shop in recent years. Just last year, the lore of the student kiss and the shop figured into the plot of a Hallmark movie, A Heidelberg Holiday. 
propelling the sweet story, sweets story worldwide. According to Stutzenberger, many people get nostalgic, not just with the store, but with the history of the student kiss as a token of love. We have older customers who come to the shop. There was one couple, they were in their 90s, I think, looking through the window. The man came into the shop, and when he got the ca- to the cash register, he asked for one student kiss, says Stutzenberger. I asked him if he wanted o- any more. I will never forget it. He looked at me and said, One will be enough. I gave her one about 70 years ago. And now she gets the second one. It was so lovely, he adds. I've got to be honest. <laughs> I gave him more chocolates. Well, our next article predates Tiffany's. A metal detectorist finds a rare 3,000 year old dress fastener. The gold accessory is one of only seven artifacts of this kind discovered in England and Wales. A metal detectorist in Staffordshire, England, has unearthed a gold Bronze Age dress fastener, according to a recent report from the British Museum. Jonathan Needham, a 54-year-old retired tree surgeon, found the artifact on May 6th of 2022, the same day as Charles III's coronation. Officials say the fastener was likely made in Ireland. It's one of only seven artifacts of its kind discovered in England and Wales. This remarkable gold object illustrates cultural links between Ireland and Britain during the Bronze Age, writes the museum. At this time, Irish smiths were producing some of the most exquisite gold work in Europe. The Bronze Age in Britain lasted from around 23,000 BCE to 800 BCE. The region has also revealed other nearby Bronze Age finds, including a pair of axes called Paul staves. The newly discovered fastener is five inches long and weighs about a quarter of a pound. It is lightly scratched, which could indicate wear, and doesn't appear to have any decorative embellishments. The fastener looks a bit like a modern-day bracelet, but experts with the British Museum have confirmed that it was meant to secure women's clothing. The large enigmatic fastener, enigmatic fastener is formed of a solid cast bow, bow-shaped body connecting two skillfully raised cone-shaped terminals, per the report. It may have been worn on the body to hold together the cloak, skirt, or dress of an important person. When Needham first discovered the artifact, he wasn't quite sure what he'd found. Perhaps he wondered it was some sort of aluminum drawer handle, and honestly, I could see why he would think that. He posted an image of the object online. Straight away, people said it was 3,000-year-old gold, and that at... That And at that point, we were able to celebrate, Needham tells the BBC News. We were punching the roof at what we had found. Once the item's historic value became apparent, Needham gave it to the Derby Museum. 
The Treasure Act of 1996 requires individuals who find certain treasures over 300 years old to report their discoveries. How much the fastener is worth is still unclear, but Needham tells the BBC News that it could be a life-changing amount. Once sold, Needham will split the finder's fee with the landowner. The British Museum's report lists archaeological finds from England, Wales, and Northern Ireland in 2022. Of the 53,490 discoveries, 1,378 were treasure cases, the highest number ever reported in a single year. The record-breaking figures highlight the huge contribution that members of the public are making to increasing archaeological knowledge in the UK today, writes the museum. Most objects have been found by people metal detecting, and most of the finds were made on cultivated land where they otherwise could be lost to plowing. Since we have just a few moments left, I'm going back to the reader questions of the Smithsonian. And honestly, this one sounded fun. When did American cartoonists switch from using captions to speech bubbles? Modern comic art follows caricature traditions that began as early as the 18th century. Dialogue used to be used to be contained in labels or long outlined word balloons. The Yellow Kid, generally considered the first U.S. comic strip character, spoke in rounded speech bubbles when he first appeared at the end of the 1800s. The use of speech bubbles continued through the 1910s, when artists began to be hired across the U.S to produce a variety of cartoon titles and into the golden age of superhero comics, which started with Superman's 1938 debut. They prevail to this day. And that was answered by Joan Baudreau, curator of printing and graphic arts from the National Museum of American History. And this next question, and our last. Some mammals have tails that seem useless. Or am I missing something? And I couldn't help but think of our own tailbone. At first glance, it may seem that many mammals don't use their tails for much, but in fact they do. Dogs, for example, use their tails for social signaling. You can observe hierarchy by whether a tail is held straight up or pointed down or between the hind legs. Some cats, such as the cheetah, use their tails as a counterweight to help them balance. Some mammals have prehensile tails and can hang from them. Like the Bornean tufted ground squirrel puffs up its beautiful long-furred tail, likely to confuse potential predators. This was written by Melissa T.R. Hawkins, curator of mammals from the National Museum of Natural History. And on that note, I'm not going to fill it any more with the last 30 seconds or so. Short and sweet. And as I hope your Valentine was, this is Jody signing off. <laughs>